Judges 16 tonight. Judges chapter 16. I do think that some of the things that may happen, we get blindsided by even with the technical difficulty. There's no doubt in my mind that the devil, who is a, an active agent, especially in the, um, in, in the spiritual realm, uh, does, does work. And, and anything that he can do to disrupt, he does do that. And I'm not one that looks for the devil under every rock and, and blame him for everything. But I do think we have to understand that whatever battle we're in this week and any day of our life, the biggest battle, the Bible says in Ephesians 6 and verse 12, it's not with another person. It's a spiritual battle. And sometimes we look at something and think it's just a technical issue or it's just a person issue. It's just a conflict. And if we don't recognize that the greatest battle is in the spiritual realm, we're only going to fight that battle on the physical level. And if we fight the battle on, on a physical level only, we're not going to see the victory that God has. And so the point is, everything ought to be won on our knees every aspect, and especially when it comes to the church uh, and the activities of the church because uh, Satan is trying to oppose it. But remember this, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As we talked about the philosophy that we have as being still a church, a church that Jesus designed, a church that is, is something in the heartbeat of God. He died for the church, the Bible says. I think it's helpful that we understand to be a Bible believer today, we're not on the defense. I'm not having to defend this. Matthew 16 tells us we're on the offense. The gates of hell are not going to be able to overcome. We're on the offense. We're onward Christian soldiers. We're marching as to war. But we're not trying to get to victory. We're going from victory in Jesus to victory as well. It's victory to victory. And we can be regularly in victory, but we've got to recognize that it is a spiritual battle. We're in a battle this week. It's a good battle. He says, fight the good fight of faith. It's not just, oh, we're just going to hunker down and do it and grit our teeth and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We've got to recognize that, um, that this is a spiritual battle we're facing. And I want to look at a little bit of that this evening and help us and appreciate very much those that have put work in this afternoon, the choir practices and uh, the special music and, and all the different things that go into it. And uh, I do commend you for making the Lord a big deal in your life and being here this evening. Um, you know, the Bible talks about Esau, how he traded his birthright and for a bowl of soup. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that he's a profane man. And it's not that Esau was spewing profanity. That's not what made him profane. Profane simply means that he took that which was spiritual, something that was sacred and right, his birthright, and he treated it like it was something secular, a bowl of soup. And while somebody would say, I would never do that, you and I haven't really been in a position perhaps to trade birthright for a bowl of soup. I want to tell you, a lot of people who claim the name of Christ did trade a church service for a super bowl. And that's profane. 
And so I'm thankful for everyone who's here. I'm not going to preach against the sins of those absent. I'm going to preach against the sins of those present tonight. So I'm not going to preach against Super Bowl since you're here, unless you're trying to take a sneak peek at it on your phone, and um, we'll go after that. And so, but, um, but I know you're here because you have a heart for God to work, and the good news is He has a heart to work in our midst as well. Judges chapter 16, we have that. Let's stand together, please, out of respect for the reading of the Bible. We'll look at verse number 23. And the Bible reads, well, let's go back to verse 21. But the Philistines took him, that is Samson, and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass. And he did grind in the prison house. Howbeit, the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. For they said, Our God hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, that is, Samson, they praised their God. You see that with the little g. For they said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. And it came to pass, when their hearts were merry, that they said, Call for Samson, that he may make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house, and he made them sport. And they set him between the pillars. And Samson said unto the lad that held him by the hand, Suffer me that I may feel the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And there were upon the roof about three thousand men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood and on which it was borne up of the one with his right hand and of the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein, so that the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. We'll stop our reading there. The title of the book that we're just reading is known as the book of Judges. Judges simply refers to the responsibility of those that God called up, raised up, in order that they might function as a judge over His people. The responsibility of these judges over a 400 period of time was actually that of a deliverer. We call them judges here, but they could also be called deliverers for that's what they did. We come now to Judges 16. And here we find the last of these deliverers. And in Judges 16, we see in these verses that we've read the greatest deliverer, humanly speaking, is in a bad place himself. The curtain remains open for all of us to peer into his life and see 
the strongest man to walk upon this earth, one of the greatest deliverers that God called up in the Old Testament. And we find him in a very difficult, desperate situation. One of the greatest deliverers to represent Jehovah God is now himself in a place needing to be delivered. I don't know where you might be, but I am pretty confident. If you've been saved from sin and hell, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, you've been born again. You received a great deliverance from the penalty of sin. Jesus did not just die, be buried, and rise again the third day to deliver you from the penalty of sin. He also wants to deliver you from the power of sin. For many a Christian, they live regularly defeated and they're shocked by victory. That's not Bible Christianity. The Bible admits that there's going to be defeat, but it does not assume that that's the way we should live. Normal Christianity is to live regularly in victory and shocked by defeat. However, defeat does occur. And when you and I find defeat, sometimes it will rob you of hope. Sometimes it will rob you of any prospect of deliverance. And I hope we can find this morning, or rather this evening, by looking at Samson, that when hope is gone, help is still on the way. When hope is gone, help is still on the way. I want to preach to you on the dynamics of deliverance. Thank you. Please be seated. In the early 1900s, a U.S. Navy submarine was accidentally rammed by a Coast Guard destroyer while surfacing outside of Massachusetts in the waters, and rescue operations immediately went underway, but because of severe weather, their rescue attempts were thwarted. These uh, men, rescue operation team, tried to rescue six men that were trapped inside this sunken submarine. These six men were trapped inside the, the torpedo room and these men began to exchange with the rescue divers on the outside of the submarine through a series of Morse code trying to communicate. One of the rescue divers placed his helmeted ear on the side of that vessel and listened to one of the men on the inside tapping out Morse code with a little bit of oxygen that they had remaining. And he asked a question. The question he asked was, Is there any Sadly for these six men, there was no hope. And all six men perished. We look at Samson, it's a very disgraceful Samson. We find the devastation that occurred because of his choices, tragedy of sin in his life. Remember hearing Brother Comfort quote from preachers that he would hear when I was in college about Samson, when he would say, sin is always binding and blinding and grinding. Hey, the fact is, you and I, we choose our sin, but we don't choose the consequences. And Samson, we're witnessing here the effects of the sinful choices that he made. 
You, you can read along in Samson's life and you can find the devil using different way, ways and especially through the uh, women in Samson's life to, to capture his heart. And he's playing with the bait and he's nibbling at the cheese and, and we find that Samson ultimately is caught in the trap that he was careless with. In verse 23, the Bible says that the Philistines, the enemies of the people of God, they are praising their God, Dagon. I am thankful for the songs we've sung this morning and this evening. The songs of praise to the Lord. The songs that lift up His mighty name. But here, there too is a song that is being sung by the Philistines. And it's praise to Dagon, a false God, a God that is not alive. And the motivation for their song was verse 24, Samson himself. He motivated the enemies, the lost heathen nation to stay devoted to a false god. I sometimes wonder if God's people motivate the world to stay lost. In verse 25, Samson was ridiculed and he focused, uh, um, he was the focus of idolatry and wickedness. Few then. In Samson's life, perhaps, those around him, and few of us reading this, if we didn't know the rest of the story, few would ever say that there's possibility of recovery, possibility of true uh, deliverance. However, when Samson appears to be the most hopeless, he's actually as close to God as he ever was. Because when hope is gone, help is still available. See, we're always one decision away from destruction. We're always one decision away from blowing it. But you're also one decision away from God getting back into the scene of your life. You're one decision away from, from uh, uh, going away from God, but you're one decision for getting back to God. How long does it take for a person to get saved? Romans 10, 13, the moment you call, the moment He saves. And in your life, wherever you are in the journey, the fact is, you call to God, you still cry out to God, and He'll still deliver. Because that is our God. And Samson knew that. In fact, Samson, he recognized something about his God. Look at verse 28. And Samson called unto the Lord. Samson had confidence in the character of God. What was it that he knew about his God? Well, hold your place here and go back to Judges 10. Let's look and see what Samson knew about his God. For if we too are going to call upon our God to deliver, you're going to have to know something about His character. Notice in Judges 10 and verse 10. The Bible says, And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against Thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and the children of Ammon and from the Philistines? The Zidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites did oppress you, and ye cried to me, and I delivered you out of their hand. In other words, God is saying when they're here getting right, they're crying out to God for deliverance. God is saying, 
haven't we done this before? Haven't you done this in a revival meeting before? And God says, I'll tell you exactly when we've done this. And He gives the specific times in which this has happened. And notice in verse 13, Yet, after I delivered you every single time, yet ye have forsaken Me and served other gods. Wherefore, I will deliver you, say the next two words, no more. You see that? You see? I'll start all over again if you didn't see that. Did you see that? Well, let's try it again at the end of verse number 13. Wherefore, God says, I will deliver you. Well, that was weaker than the first time. We're not, we're not, I'm going to change my message here if we don't uh, figure this out. The, 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 it's an open book test. The answer is no more. All right, let's try it again. God says, because you've forsaken me and served other gods, wherefore I will deliver you, what is it? No, no more. I mean, you've got to see that. And that's what God says. And so God says, and let me add to that, go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. God says, we're not doing this again. You, you, you want to serve me, yet your heart gets um, attracted by other things and, and you go drifting off and, and you get into bondage and you get into trouble because you can choose your sin, but you don't choose the consequences. And when you don't like the consequences, you cry out to me and I come through every time and I deliver you and I deliver you and I deliver you and yet you forsake me and you go and serve other gods. You do what you want to do. You don't get serious about it. You don't get all in about it. And, and, and you just do your own thing. And God says, I'm not doing it anymore. Verse 15. And the children of Israel said unto the Lord, We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Notice the phrase that his soul, in verse 16, the Lord's soul, was grieved. The word soul is a Hebrew word, nephesh. His, his very essence, his very being was grieved. In other words, God is speaking to them in human terms because God is a person and God's speaking to his creation and not just his creation, but his covenant people. And he says to them, I'm not playing games with you anymore. We've done this and and you just want to get out of the mess you're in, I'm not going to do it. You, you go find another way. That's what you're going to end up doing anyway. And the people of God responded, God, you're right. We have blown it. We have sinned. And the Bible says they put away the strange gods. They just got right with God without any prospect of deliverance. God, you do whatever you, you think is right. We're getting right with you. You're right. We're wrong. And the Bible says that it moved God. Why? Because that's the God of the Bible. Our God is a delivering God. Psalm 18 and verse 2, the Bible says that my Lord is a fortress, a rock, and my deliverer. Psalm 34 and verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Amen. 
The fact is, He'll do the same for you. The Bible says in Daniel 3 and verse 17, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and He will deliver us out of Thine hand, O King. Matthew 6.13, Jesus said, pray this way, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Paul said in Romans 7 and verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, he gives the credit and the thanks and he tells us where the answer for deliverance comes from. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Galatians 1 and verse number 4, the Bible says Jesus gave Himself for our sins that He might deliver us, listen, not just from hell, but that He might deliver us from this present world, from the world in which we live, from the, from the, the, uh, uh, the pressure of the, 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 the world system, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus died to deliver us while we're walking as pilgrims and strangers upon this earth. Colossians 1.13, who, that is Jesus, hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Second Peter 2 and verse 7, and the Bible says, and delivered just Lot, Second Peter 2 and verse 9, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation. See, the fact of the matter is, our God is a delivering God. The very nature of God guarantees that He will always respond to our cry. And the Bible says of Samson back in Judges 16 and verse 28, and Samson called unto the Lord. Listen, you find in the Bible, and this has been an encouragement to me, you'll find sometimes the phrase cried. The Bible said, I quoted the verse Psalm 34 and 6, this poor man cried. The Bible tells us there are times when there is this uh, call. Jeremiah 33 and verse 3, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Listen, every call, every cry in the Bible is a prayer. But listen, not every prayer is a call. You pray over your meal, it's not quite a cry or a call unto God. Sometimes there's no trials or pressure or trouble. You're just having your time with the Lord and you pray and you intercede. You're asking the blessing of God. But it doesn't mean you're crying out to God. But when you find the cry, Jeremiah 33.3 is that cry. It is a call. And you find in its context, Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah is in a bad place. He's in a dire, straight, and desperate situation in prison. He's told to buy some land. What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And God says, you call unto me. Again, Psalm 34 and verse 6, and you'll find this throughout the Bible. This poor man cried every Call is a prayer. Not every prayer is a call, but every call is a prayer. Now here's what's encouraging. Every time there's a call from a child of God, every time there's a cry from the people of God to the God of His people, He always responds. He always responds. This is Samson we're going to look at. How about Peter in Matthew 14? Peter prays to Jesus, Lord, If it's you, bid me come. That's a prayer. He's talking to the Lord. The Lord says, come. He steps out on the water. He walks on the water. 
And God enables him to do the miraculous. It really is miraculous. Peter can't do that. It was the Lord that enabled Peter to do that. And the Lord, the Bible says Peter took his eyes off the Lord. He saw the winds. He saw the situation. He saw the circumstances. He saw that his life was a mess. Listen, God can easily uh, enable you to do what you never could ever possibly think of doing if you'll just trust Him and obey. But, but the devil also knows how to get you to not do what you normally would think is normal. Like, for example, coming to church Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And the devil knows that he can but make the wash machine break, the dishwasher go out, the TV break, and the car to break, and I mean, something like that. And it causes the people of God to miss church. Wouldn't miss work necessarily. Not going to miss getting together with friends necessarily, but we're going to miss church. And, and the devil knows, and, and the devil brought about the, the boisterous winds and sea, and the Bible says Peter sank. Why did Peter sink? Well, he sank because it was the opposite of why he walked on water. He walked on water because he was looking unto the enabler, Jesus, to enable him to do what he could not do. He sank because he stopped looking at his enabler. And when he sank, the Bible says he cried. Lord, save me. See, a lot of times the call, the cry, it's one of those what Jim Van Gelderen calls a flare prayer. You ain't got time to say in Jesus' name. Sometimes it's just help, gurgle, gurgle. And the Lord always responds. Why? Because the cry and the call many times comes from a place of desperation. And it causes us, it's not because God is a little bit more in tune when we're in a desperate situation. It's that we are a little bit more in tune in a desperate situation. See, people don't pray for salvation until they figure out they're in a bad place. They're lost and heading to hell. And many times God's people are not praying for an awakening because they don't see how bad of a shape that they're really in that, that we need an awakening. And so these desperate situations is a call and it's a cry. And the encouragement is our God is a God that always responds to the call and the cry of His people. Oh, I love the hymn, Tis the grandest thing through the ages rung. Tis the grandest thing through the for a mortal tongue. Tis the grandest thing that the world e'er sung. Our God is able to deliver thee. He is able to deliver thee. He is able to deliver thee. Though by sin oppressed, go to Him for rest. Our God is able to deliver thee. Now there are two extreme and errant views when it comes to the matter of deliverance. And by the way, I think this, is, this is, to me has been a very helpful principle just in ministry and life period. And that is, there's a ditch on both sides of every truth and every issue. And if we're not careful, we become ditch dwellers. Because we, we want to stay right, we want to stay fundamental, we want to stay clean. And so what happens is, if we're not careful, we react to those in, in one ditch, in a ditch on the other side. And if we're not careful, we're going to go past the Bible position and we find ourselves in a ditch on the other side. And Peter was one like that. And Jesus went to wash the disciples' feet. Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. That's one ditch. And Jesus said, then we're not going to have any fellowship. 
And Peter said, well, don't stop with my feet. Wash all of me. There he is in the other ditch. And Jesus said, you don't need to be all washed. That happens when you got saved. What you need is to get clean from time to time. For example, I'm glad uh, uh, your pastor has dealt with the, the confusion and the carnality of Calvinism. And Calvinism didn't come out of the Bible. And, and so the problem has been when people take a system of Calvinism and they try to interpret the Bible based upon that system or any system for that matter. But I heard one preacher say, I am so against Calvinism, and I am too, by the way. I mean, I'm so against Calvinism, I don't even read Calvin and Hobbes anymore. I just, I, I, I just, just got away from it. But, uh, but, but the preacher said, I'm so against Calvinism. You know, I think Arminianism is pretty good. So he went to a ditch on the other side. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminian. What am I? I'm a Bible believer. Uh, there, there, there's not just two positions. It's whatever positions people come up with, and then there's the Bible position. The two ditches that people will find themselves in when it comes to deliverance is this. One person says, I'm pretty good. I don't need to be delivered. Or they'll say it this way. I don't think I need revival. Um, you know, I don't, I don't see anything in my life. Well, that's part of the problem. David didn't pray, search me, old David. He prayed, search me, old God. You and I may miss it. God's not going to miss it. Uh, I just, you know, I, I know there's some people here who need it, and I'm praying that they'll get it. We sang Revive Us Again, probably sung at every revival meeting, and I love it because it's a prayer. And when you sing that and you mean that, God says, I'll do that. But how about that song that goes like this? It's me. It's me. It's me, O oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. It's not my sister, not my brother, but it's me, O oh Lord. But many times people are in one ditch. I don't really need this. I don't need to go to the altar. I don't need to get things right. You know, a lot of times people get all uh, bothered by this matter of coming to the altar. I preached, remember, years ago, I don't really, I'm not in those places anymore where I sometimes would go um, starting out in evangelism when I was starting out, but I'd get into some of these places and the pastor would say, you know, people don't respond like they used to, so don't feel pressured to give an invitation. I'd say, I don't feel pressured, but we're going to give one anyway. And sometimes people criticize, all you're trying to do is just get us down the aisle. If I was just trying to get you down the aisle, I would preach some little syrupy things, some little happy, sweet things to get you down the aisle. I'm not trying to get anybody down the aisle. In fact, I guarantee you, you come down to the aisle at the end of this message, and you stay down here at the altar, and you sleep here all night, it's not going to change your life. The altar doesn't change a person's life. But Jesus will. And the problem is, is whenever people get to a point and they say, I just don't think I need it. One lady came to me and she said, I just want you to know, preacher, the reason why I don't go to the altar is because you know my knees are bad. I just can't get down. I said, that's okay. Sounds to me like you haven't been there in a while. When you get down, just stay there. Somebody will help you up when it's time. See, we get cute about stuff like that. And I don't think it's too cute. 
I don't, I don't think it's cute even during the invitation when people start zip, 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 putting on their coats and sweaters and getting their keys. I, I'm telling you, this is a serious time. Invitation is not the, uh, the, the, the dismissal part of it. It's not the beginning of the dismissal. It's the invitation to be doers instead of hearers only. And as long as we think, oh, you know, we're, we're okay. Someone says, you know, preaching to teenagers is hard. I said, why don't you try preaching to their grandparents? I have preaching for me right now. Well, they're done. We start at 5 o'clock. I'm, I'm hoping he's done by now. It's a 90-year-old man. And he'll preach up a storm. I'm thankful for his attitude. He was a Bible college professor of mine. He became my adopted dad, is what, what I, I call him dad. My children call him grandpa. We took him in at Christmas. He just felt like uh, my, my eyesight's getting worse. And he said, but I'm not stopping for God. And he doesn't. He can't. We bought, bought, bought him a Bible with the largest print we could find. He was so thrilled that he could once again read the book of Isaiah. He was thrilled that he could get back into his Bible and still read it some more. But he's in there reading and he's studying and he's writing and 90 years old. What excuse do we have? The fact of the matter is, it's an ungodly, wicked attitude to say, I don't think I, I, I need, need to be delivered. People wonder, how is it that lost people can come in? And there no doubt will be some lost people here tomorrow night. There should be. If you invite them and if you pray for them and if you're working at it, there should be. But sometimes people ask, how come lost people can come in and hear a gospel message by some of the best preachers you've had here? Ron Comfort and Tom Farrell and Jim Van Gelder. And they preach the gospel. How can lost people hear the message and go out not safe? i tell you, the same way God's people can hear the message of deliverance, but go out night after night, week after week, month after month, and year after year, not being changed. So that's one ditch. The other ditch is whenever a person says, I'm too far gone. I'm in a mess. My life is a mess. My family is in a mess. It's a mess. I've seen situations where in a counseling scenario where somebody would contact me and their own pastor would, would say, Brother Ingram, if you could help them, I'm telling you, I don't know if there's any hope. I think to myself, as long as there's a God, there's hope. But there are people who have been convinced, I'm too far gone. On this side, there are people who feel like, I'm not gone far enough. I'm not that bad. And over here, you've got people who are saying, I'm too far gone. There's nothing that can be done. It could even be somebody tonight who is sitting here who has a title and a position. Everything looks good on the outside, but on the inside, you're dying. You're in a mess. I want you to know there's a God tonight who wants to deliver you. There's a God who still is a deliverer. And the Bible tells us that Samson prays a very short prayer. And this short 
prayer, however, speaks volumes about this kind of God that we serve. And I want us to examine here in these few moments the cry, the prayer of Samson so that we can learn what Samson did in his last moments upon this earth. What he did in his at the time of his death if we will do in the remaining years or time that we have upon this earth and what we can do in our life, we too can experience the deliverance that Samson experienced. What he experienced in his death, we can experience in our life. Look at it in verse 28. I'll give you four things. And Samson called unto the Lord. There's the cry. There's the call for deliverance. And said, Oh, Lord God, remember me. Oh, Lord God, remember me. I call this, number one, the attitude of repentance. The attitude of repentance. What is repentance? Ultimately, it's a change of mind. Don't you see a change of mind in Samson's life? You know, when he is flirting with sin and Delilah is being used by the devil and the Philistines to trick and trap Samson, I don't think it was anywhere in his thoughts to say, God, I just want to take a moment here and ask that you would remember me. I'm in a, I'm in a very difficult situation, God. I just, I, just, I just need you right now. That wasn't in his thoughts. But what Samson is praying now in a situation where nobody can help him and not even he himself, what repentance has occurred? Change of mind. George Whitfield said when the O's and the A's have come back into the prayers of God's people, you can count on the fact that the Lord is already at work. Oh, Lord God. David prayed in Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God. O to be saved from myself, dear Lord. O to be lost in Thee. O that it may be no more I, dear Lord, but Christ that lives in me. Look at Samson again. I've said, you see him toying with the bait, nibbling the cheese as uh, so to speak, and and you look and, and you and you just want to cry out to him, at least I do when I'm reading, I say, Samson, you idiot! You know better! You know you can't do this! And here he finds himself experiencing the devastation of his wrong decisions. You make your decisions. Your decisions will make you. What about you? What have you been doing? What decisions have you been making independent of God? What kind of mess have you found yourself in? Maybe you're not in a mess yet, but I'm telling you, any decision that is independent of God, you will reap what you sow. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. And you won't be the first one to mock Him and get away with the wrong decision. But what you can do, you can change your mind. Oh Lord God, remember me. An attitude of repentance. A revival is largely about the fact, well, step back to 
what comes before revival, and that's salvation. The Gospel. The Gospel is the good news to the sinner. You're lost. You're heading to hell. You need a Savior, a Deliverer. But once a person gets saved, the same One who saves us, He is our Reviver and our Deliverer. And we are delivered much the same way. We realize we're in a mess. We can't get ourselves out. We need Him. And the truth of the matter is, the closer you get to God, you realize that revival is not something. It's someone. You recognize, I don't need revival just certain times of the year. I need reviving each and every day. The closer I get to Him, my heart's cry is, I want to know Him more. Paul, what is it you want? Paul, at the end of your ministry, writer of half the New Testament, great preacher, missionary, teacher, evangelist, whatever we want to give Paul as far as a title. Paul, what do you want? That I may know Him. He's written half the New Testament about Him. When you get closer to Him, you don't want less of Him. You want more of Him. What I'm saying is there's some people that may need to do some mind changing this evening. God will deliver. He will revive. He will save. But He's not going to do so until you change your mind about your situation. You think you're too far gone? Change your mind. God is able to deliver thee. You're not bad enough. You better change your mind because without Him you can do nothing. And sin, any sin, any sin that put Jesus on the cross, it's a big deal. Number one, an attitude of repentance. Number two, look at verse 28. Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me. I pray thee, and strengthen me. And strengthen me. Strengthen me. Do you see the irony in that? The strongest man to ever walk upon this earth is now asking God to strengthen why? Because that's where his strength came from in the first place. His strength didn't come from his hair. He definitely did not come from his muscles, or they would not be asking, where does your power come from? His strength came from God. And now he's in a situation he can't get himself out of that. He changes his mind. Oh Lord, God, remember me. And now he prays and strengthen me. You want to know what Samson experienced in his death? We can put into practice in our daily life, and that is an attitude of repentance. I don't want this sin. I don't want this, this, this situation. I don't want to be in control of it. I need to be delivered. I need you who is the Lord of all to be the Lord of my life. But number two, what he's saying is this, and here's where we've got to get to. God, I can't do it. I can't do it. I, how many times have, has somebody said who's messing around in pornography, I can handle it. I can stop it. Started a, a biography of Winston Churchill, three-volume biography written by Manchester on Winston Churchill. And one thing I admire Churchill, there's a lot of things I, 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 I greatly admire. One of the greatest uh, human leaders uh, of the 20th century, but I didn't recognize how big of a, an alcoholic he was. And yet, he would have said he's not an alcoholic and, and he could control it pretty well, but he drank constantly. From the, sometimes alcohol was what he would have for breakfast. I mean, instead of breakfast. He always had alcohol with his breakfast. 
And they just alcohol constantly. But I thought to myself, that's the way a lot of God's people would be. You know, I may, I may look at this. I may be struggling, but I don't need to get to the pastor. I don't really need to get help about this because, you know, I can stop it anytime I want to. But you're not! Because you've yet to come to the place that Samson got to. And that is saying, God, I can't do this. Jesus said, without me, you can do how much? Nothing. You can't do anything that's right. You can't do anything that is of lasting value. Oh, you say, well, I, I, I read my Bible. I can teach a class. And the fact is, I can preach without Him. But I cannot preach with authority and power that can change lives without Him. I can't do it. And neither can you. You can't love your wife as Christ loved the church. You can't submit to your husband as the Bible commands. You and I cannot be salt and light effectively. We can't do it without Him. And the fact is, Samson got to that place, he realized, you know, it's not been all about Samson. It should have never been about Samson. It should have always been about the one that it's supposed to be about, and it's God. And he got to the point, he said, I can't do it. Self-dependence. And here's the danger. Self-dependence. If we're not careful, self-dependence. Have you ever wondered how? How is it that preachers can blow it of course, we understand that there's not any sin that's ever been committed, but what any of us could commit if under the same provocation, we know that. But how is it that a preacher, a great man of God, can have an affair, leave his wife, abandon his family, take a church and go right down to the cesspool of the world? How in the world is that possible? What we look at is the, the gross sin that a man is in. What we look at is when he crashes and burns. How does that happen? It's not difficult. But it's tragic. None of us are exempt. How does it happen? It becomes self-dependent. I don't need to seek God today. I don't really need to pray. When I was in evangelism. Many, many times towards the end, I would ask pastors, could we meet each day for prayer? Can we get to the staff? Let's just pray. Let's pray each day. People will run from a prayer meeting faster than they'll run from anything else. Do you know why I pray? Because I need God. When you and I don't pray, do you know what we're saying? We're saying, I don't need God. Self-dependence. I want to tell you where self-dependence is nurtured and cultivated. It's in the big shot realm. It's in the big shot world of Christianity. Big shots. You know what I mean by big shots? Doctor so-and-so. Oh, great man of God. You know what Jesus said a great man of God is? He's a servant. I, I've been around some of those great men of God. I was with a pastor in the state of Florida. He said, I met one of these great men of God. I reached out my hand to shake his hand, and his bodyguard slapped my hand away.
I was in a conference one time preaching. Walked in, just flew in, left a camp that I was preaching in, flew to a conference, and and I flew back to the camp, but I walked into the conference, and one of the main speakers, not the one ahead of it, but one of the main speakers, came up to me, put his arm around me. He said, welcome to the big leagues. I'll tell you, my heart sank, and my blood began to boil. No one was greater than Jesus Christ. No one. Do you know how Jesus Christ was exalted? God exalted Him. Do you know what He did prior to God exalting Him and giving Him a name which is above every name? The Bible says He humbled Himself. Do you know in Philippians 2 we're told that Jesus humbled Himself in heaven? The Bible says he thought of not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he, he didn't think that his title as God was something he was going to clutch like a thief holding on to something stolen. He wasn't holding on to his rightful position as God. He thought of not robbery to be equal with God. He humbled himself in heaven. Because He loved us. He humbled Himself at the incarnation to be born like us. To look like us. He humbled Himself again. And then the Bible says, and He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What cross? Our cross. Jesus humbled Himself. Jesus, who never had pride in His life, yet He humbled Himself in heaven at the manger scene and to go to the cross, and yet God's people have become rock stars. I'm not talking about just the people. I'm talking about those that that stand on our platforms everywhere. It's no wonder our, our, our churches are in a mess. While preachers are being rock star big shots, the churches are being prostituted out so that they can climb the ladder of success. I tell you, there's something wrong with that. There are no big shots. And Jesus said, the greatest, let them serve. One preacher told me, evangelist told me, I'm not going to go to a church unless they put me in this kind of a hotel and they'll pay this and do this. And he said, he said, the pastor told me we want to have you in, but I can't, our church can't afford that. And if we were to do that, they'd think you're some kind of big shot. And the pastor said, I don't want to tell our church that. The evangelist said, he's telling me, he said, I looked at that pastor and I said, I am a big shot. I said, I'm shocked. And he looked at me. He said, Doc, you are a big shot too. I said, I am not. Jesus Christ was not a big shot. He was the greatest servant who ever lived. He just so happens to be God. I'm just telling you, we're in a mess. So let's go back and answer the question. How is it that preachers blow it? The same reason anybody else blows it. Self 
self-dependence. That's where it starts. But listen, if you don't get right about self-dependence, you know where it leads to? Self-indulgence. The affair doesn't happen overnight. Pornography addiction doesn't happen overnight. David didn't just overnight, uh-oh, stumble into sin in bed with Bathsheba. By the way, no one falls into sin. They lay the groundwork and they take the steps to get there. And it always begins with self-reliance. I can handle it. I can do it. We're, we're really going through a big push over the past year trying to help the men in our church. And I think it's not just Canaan Baptist Church that has a problem. I think it's every church in America where there's a man that has half a brain cell and still understands that he's a man and he's got blood of a man flowing through them, that God has made us in such a way. And what God has made and said is good, the devil wants to get in on and pervert and destroy. And there is this epidemic of tragic sin that is sweeping across our men, and that is pornography and lust and being destroyed by that. And now with the ease of a smartphone, people can look at junk and trash in, in, in just 30 minutes. A person can look at more today than what those during World War II could have looked at in their lifetime. Yet, there's not a lot being done about it. But a man's not going to be right with God until he begins to see, this is a mess, this is a problem. And I've had some men come in and say, I'm tired, of, I'm tired, I'm sick, and I'm tired of saying, I can do it, I can do it, when the fact is, I can't do it! And I'm tired of it! So I'll ask him a couple of questions. One, would you be willing to get rid of your phone, period? I mean, chuck the phone in the trash can. Are you willing to do it? And if they say, how am I going to communicate? I mean, my business, how am I going? Well, use a homing pigeon for all I care. I don't really, I really don't care. You, you just described to me the problem at home. Your wife is devastated. Your kids are going to bear the marks of this. And you said you're sick and tired, but it doesn't really sound like you're sick and tired. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 5? There needs to be radical amputation. If a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, Jesus goes on to say, then pluck your eye out. Cut off your hand. Whatever it is that causes you to stumble into that sin. Now, he's not literally talking about plucking your eye out and cutting off your hand. But what he is literally saying is, you need to be willing to do whatever it takes to get right. Radical amputation. The phone? You're going to choose your smartphone? Doesn't sound too smart to me, does it? I think your wife's more important than your phone. I think you can find something else to play your words with friends and Candy Crush and Fortnite on, sir. It's not just kids who have a problem with this. I think you ought to see your kids ought not be for sale. It's a big deal that you show up at home. There's a lot of angry dads that are destroying their kids, angry outbursts. You know where anger comes from? It comes from unbridled passions on the inside. You show me a man who has bursts of anger, and I'll show you he's got some moral failure in his life. But it's not just angry dads. There are some dads who come home. They work. They provide for their family. 
They're there at home, but they're absent while they're there. What I'm saying is, we get to this place, it all starts by self-dependence. Skip a devotion, skip our time with God, we skip seeking His face. Samson got to a point, he got it. He says, oh God, strengthen me. I can't do this. I can't. I can't do it. Every day you and I live, that ought to be our heart cry. I can't do it. And that doesn't sound very positive, does it? That's that's really not what you're going to hear from the new evangelical TV preachers. They're constantly preaching, you can do it. Find the champion from within. You know, you need to love yourself. You can do whatever it is you set your mind to. No, we need to get in line with the Bible and find out what Jesus says without Him. You can do nothing. Nothing. Let's move on. Not only do we find Samson crying out, repentance, God, I agree with You. Not only do we find him crying out, Lord, strengthen me. He's saying, I can't do it. Look at this, verse 28. Middle of the verse. Only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. What's he talking about? Well, to be honest with you, there is some ambiguity here and some com- and commentators are going to differ on these verses. So I'm just telling you where, what I think and the way I see it, what I really believe about this. But he, he's asking not for revenge. I don't think he's just looking for revenge upon the Philistines because you know, he, he, he lost a battle and, and so he needs, he needs somebody to come in and whoop him. That's not what, he's, that's not what I think he's saying. I think he recognizes he's in this situation. His eyes are gone. He can't see. Why? Because his eyes are part of the problem that got him into this mess. And yet he still recognizes when a person gets right with God, it's amazing the clarity that we have when we get closer to God. What my responsibility is as a father, as a, as a husband, as a pastor, as a Christian in society. And we begin to see when we're away from God, we don't think about those things. We just think it's us. We're, it's just that we're not bothering anybody else. But I believe as he's getting right, I agree with you, God. An attitude of repentance. I can't do it. God, would you avenge? I believe what he's saying is, God, I can't. But number three, God, you can. You can. I think it's a proper formula. God, I can't do this, but you can. Remember how Jesus was born? Remember the setting, the angel comes and announces to Mary, and Mary said, how can these things be? This is impossible. I've not known a man. It's impossible. It's too premature for Mary to have a child. She has never had relations with a man. Humanly, it's impossible. Too soon. And she's told, well, here's another one that's going to 
shock you, Mary. Your cousin Elizabeth, you know her? Oh yeah. She's too old. She too is with child. Here's one, it's too early, Mary. Here's one, she's too old. And yet the Bible's conclusion is, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, when you and I say, I can't, I think God is saying, that's right. He never said we could. But God can. He always said He would. Well, what do you do with the verse, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me? What I do with that is, I embrace it. I love it. I thank God for it. And I depend upon it because it's true. But remember the emphasis. It's not, I can do all things. As some Christian bookstores may have this picture of an athlete crossing a finish line. And it'll have, I can do all things, dot, dot, dot. Actually, it would go this way for you. I can do all things, dot, dot, dot. That's blasphemy. That's not what the Bible is teaching. It is, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. The emphasis is not upon Paul. The emphasis is upon Christ. And Samson is saying, I just, I really believe he's saying, God, I changed my mind. I agree with you. Remember me. I can't do it. But you can. A.W. Tozer said, my philosophy is this. Everything is a mess until God gets in on the scene. You know our church... Our churches are a mess until God gets in on the scene. Our Christian schools are a mess until God is on the scene. Our homes are a mess until God gets in on the scene. I can't, but you can. Here's one last one. Look at this. The Bible says in verse 30, And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein, so that the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which slew in his life. Notice the phrase, verse 30, let me die with the Philippines. With the Philippines. Not the Philippines, the Philistines. <laughs> yeah, that's a different version. Someone, Some commentators say that here... Samson's committing suicide. But remember, he is found in Hebrews chapter 11. I think he's in Hebrews chapter 11 because of this event. I really don't think he's just committing suicide. That's not what he's doing. But he's recognizing his responsibility and he wants to be faithful still because he recognizes his God is still able to deliver him. And so what he's wanting to do is that which God has called him to do. Failure is not final. When he says, let me die, at the very least, here's what I believe he's saying. The fourth dynamic which provides deliverance. Attitude of repentance. God, I agree with you. I can't do this. Strengthen me. Avenge me. Lord, you can do it. Number four, let me die with the Philistines. Let me say it again. The Philistines. He's saying, I'm all in. You can't read this and come away that Samson's just dabbling at this. Samson is saying, I'm all in. For God to get the glory, for God's people to be delivered, I'm all in.
There's something insincere, I believe, about the person of God who repeatedly tells God how much they love Him while refusing to obey Him. Divine intervention. Divine direction. Deliverance from God. It begins with unconditional surrender and submission to God. Paul says this, I die All in. Do you need God to deliver in an area of your life? It may be something private and secret in the recesses of your heart. Do you need God to show up? He can and He's able. God's not a game show host. He's not making a deal with you or anybody else. But when you get all in, it's over but the shouting at that point because God is there. Hope is gone. Help is on the way. Would you stand with me, please? Heads bowed and eyes closed.